Hi, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. This is a reminder that we're going on tour next summer. Yes, that's right. We're going on tour. The Living Undeterred U.S. Tour 2022. We're leaving on May 9th next summer. We're going to every state and we're raising a million dollars. That's the plan to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. We need your help though. I cannot do this alone. I know there's a lot of people out there interested in this uh, project of ours. You can go to our website, www.livingundeterred.com. We need volunteers. We need state partnerships. We need sponsors. We need as many people as we can to get out there and help those people that need help to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. Again, go to livingundeterred.com and click on the Living Undetoured icon, and all the information is there. Again, thank you very much for the support, and as always, keep living undeterred. Hello, welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Johnston, and today I have an exciting guest, uh, Jake LeClaire from the wonderful state of New York, the Lake Placid area. And we're going to have an awesome conversation today. I met Jake on social media through some mutual friends and was immediately drawn to his, um, his passion towards advocacy, towards recovery with uh, addictions and substance abuse. And his own personal story, his vulnerability drew me in. And him and I have a lot of similarities. And our stories, though, um, are pretty unique to us, but can certainly help other people that are having uh, challenges with these issues with mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. So without further ado, I'm gonna introduce Jake LeClaire. I'm gonna let Jake introduce himself, but uh, Jake, honored to have you on the show. And uh, why do you think I brought you on the Living Undeterred podcast? Hey, Jeff, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. And I love the question. Uh, well, sure, we have a lot of uh, common ground in terms of the negative impact uh, that the areas of substance abuse addiction, uh, suicide, and other crises with mental health have had in our life. For me, I, I think I have 41 years of experience with this because I pretty much think I was brought into the world that way. Um, and you know, for, for me also so important, Jeff, is I think we share a, you know, a ton of innovation and passion to pioneer a different way forward. And that's a, one mm -hmm. reason I feel really connected to you on this. Um, and then you know, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, what I thought was really cool was when we talked about the really tremendous positive impact that college athletics have had mm. in my life and in the lives yep. of the people you love. And actually over here is a picture uh, of me when I was a senior back at Cornell on the polo string. Mm. And I got to tell you, man, like if there's one thing that gave me a ton of agility uh, to operate in life, no matter how much life gets burnt down, it was playing college athletics for me. Yeah. And um, the, today, it's just it's such an honor to be in my purpose and share some of that agility gift I was given with people who could benefit from it. I, I do like that angle of the sports because in my book, this one's for you, an inspirational youth through addiction, death, and meaning. I think I have five or six chapters dedicated to the game of golf, which which in my story, people think, well, geez, Jeff, you know, you went out, became a pro golfer. No, furthest thing from that. Hmm. I embraced my son's dream to play college golf. 
at a very young age, even before our son died, died of heroin. And, um, and uh, when that did happen, though, we had an outlet. You know, sports provided a platform for Ian, my middle son, to raise over $25,000 to help uh, mental health, addiction, alcohol, abuse, suicide, all those things. Matter of fact, there's our sign, the 2021 Living Undeterred Golf Classic. And we continue to use golf as a way to continue our story. And I get often asked, and Jake, I'm sure you'd say the same thing about where does your fight come from? You use the word uh, resilient. I use undeterred, but they're the same thing. And where does it come from? And I have to say that for me, it came from my early indoctrination to competitive youth sports. And you get knocked down, you get back up. My dad was a tremendous athlete, uh, could have played. He got drafted to play for the Cubs and he was an All-American basketball player too. And I learned a lot from sports with three brothers. If you weren't competitive, you didn't eat. <laughs> mm. And I think as you got older in life and then life throws a curveball like death or getting fired or a drunk driving that I had or anything that happens, you revert back to those competitive juices. So I, I agree with you. Um, yours was, you said polo in your case? Yeah, over over here is uh, the horse that's made the biggest difference in my life, hmm. including he played a little polo, and over here is the outcome of that. So uh, I in no way come from a privileged background. I come from the school of the hard knocks, uh, and somehow my mom did a miracle job of getting the bills paid, and, and for some reason I showed up in the world hungry, <laughs> hungry for better, hungry yeah. for more. Um, and so, uh, the, the part of my story where I'm from a town of a thousand people, um, and I was just hungry to do better, uh, is so, so key to how I got here. And what does that boil down to? Yeah, I've, I've put myself through a lot of hard work over the years, uh, and I've been through plenty of years, uh, where my life was totally a mess. Uh, I, I would say, for the most part, Jeff, in those years, to answer your question, there's always been this, at least this little element of hope. The, the flame burnt at least a little bit at all times that something better was available to me and I was on the way to the solution. It makes me think about, you said the word better, I think two or three times in that, in that comment, but it, when I talk about the better versus the bitter road, you know, and I make presentations on this and I do lots of writing on this is that, you know, we have choices every day, Jake, and there could be a choice of whether you are going to drink today or not going to drink, or you're going to break into someone's house like my son did before he passed away, or you're not going to break into someone's house, or you're going to study for a test or you're not going to study for a test. And you're so correct in that, in, in that the choices that we make, Choices always precede consequences, right? They they're always come before the consequence. And consequences can be positive or negative. Right, I think the, right. The word right. could have a connotation that they're only negative, depending on how you were raised or what you learn when you're growing yeah. up. But man, I mean, the last five years, what showed up is positive consequences get pretty darn exciting when life gets big, and that's how it's going so far. 
So let's go back to the younger Jake. Um, you talked earlier off the off the show when we were chatting about your why. Uh, how did you find your why? And was it something that was an event or was it a process? Oh, wow. Definitely a process. Uh, today, I can especially see how all these dots that for a long time didn't make sense. In fact, at times I was really dissatisfied with my life how actually all these experiences have led me to my why. Ultimately though, Jeff, for me, it found me. Uh, would I necessarily, like if I just think about this cognitively, would I necessarily choose to be in my why if it was a matter of choice? And I gotta hmm. say, it's almost a no. Right. Except it found me and the way that it just clicks, I can't deny it. Interesting. I, I often think too about how I was presented this opportunity through what happened in my life to decide whether I want to embrace this opportunity. And although I say life is two roads, if your two roads are happiness and misery, there is really only one road. Because you don't want to be on the misery road. That's not even an option. Which choice do you want to make? Yeah, in a way, the choice is already made. You have to go on the better road. You, mm -hmm. you can't be on the bitter road. There's no good ending on the bitter road. It leads to anxiety, depression, substance abuse. You know, this is Suicide Awareness or Prevention Week. And when this posts, you know, probably in October, uh, that'll be over. But Suicide Prevention Week should be every day. You know, it shouldn't, yeah. we should, we shouldn't just have weeks set aside for these things. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it, it's a good first step. Uh, your, your whole life should be dedicated to suicide prevention. But so let me go back to, again, we talked a little bit about some of the things you've been through and, and now you are in a recovery business. I think you like to, you like the term it or re recovery advocacy. What, what specifically do you do? I mean, what, what, how would you, what's your elevator pitch to somebody to explain what Jake LeClaire does. I love it. I'm a recovery navigator. And the idea of navigation in the addiction recovery field is just starting to catch on. Uh, but there is already evidence that shows that when warm handoffs happen through navigation, the long-term outcomes are 26% better than the system we have. And part of my story is I've always had this uh, little obsession with seamless integration, hmm. this idea of connecting the dots better. And Jeff, part of me is also th this innovator, this pioneer, uh, where I, I think I, I think I see what works in existing systems. And, and fundamentally, I am so hungry about transformational innovation on whatever that system is and especially when it comes to processes so i'm kind of geeking out now uh to to fess up that i'm pretty obsessed about innovating processes but man when we get better processes going we get people to better results and so specifically what i'm focused on in the practice i'm developing the practice i've become comfortable calling a business is supporting mothers who love a son or a daughter struggling with their relationship with alcohol and drugs because what we know is when we access the family in recovery navigation we can uncover exactly what's holding people back in the whole family system 
which often when we see these young men or women who've been to rehab five, 10 times, yeah, it's exactly the time to look at the whole family. I mean, I use we should look at it a long time ago before five or 10 rehabs, but especially at five or 10 rehabs. And ultimately, let's get these families all on the route to happiness. Because like we were talking earlier, Jeff, like we're pretty much pack animals. Uh, if you if you don't feel called to be around a pack, I'd love to have a conversation about that. But like down down in our genes, somewhere in our bones, is this hunger to be in the pack. And for many of us, at least, our family of origin or a chosen family is the pack. Is a warm handoff the same as outreach? Hmm. I like that. Well, they're different words, so they must be different things. I think of the warm handoff, uh, Jeff, uh, as something that's very planned. Uh, I think of the warm handoff um, as ideally professionally managed. And that's really interesting to me. There, there is so much great non-professional recovery. And one of the things I see, though, is some folks don't get the kind of results, the kind of goals and success that they're looking for because they become overly dependent on non-professional recovery. And what I see with navigation is... If you drop that navigator in, well, then there can be a bunch of non-professional recovery around that professional navigator that gets great results because at least there's a professional involved. Uh, and the, the gap when folks lack any professional support, well, um, it, it is kind of leaving your experience up to other non-professionals experience at, when it comes to the outcomes. You know, you look at the numbers and everything's worse. And if 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 we could say, well, we'll just keep adding more things to the to the um, to the system to get the numbers better. So anxiety, depression, suicide would all start dropping. It, it isn't working. So we need to change the narrative, I guess, in regards to alternative ways to look at this. Um, what are some things that come top of mind to you? Uh, alternative ways to work on improving mental health, substance abuse and addiction? Mm. Well, this may be provocative. To me, the universe is always conspiring for my best interests and anyone else's best interests. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is stepping back and looking for what is it in this really difficult time that is actually the universe conspiring for the best interests because it, it truly doesn't conspire for worse interests. And what I believe is that societally, we are going through a period of massive awakening. Mm -hmm. The invitation is there. The knock is happening. The red phone on your bedstand that rings at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. is ringing. Yeah. And it's been ringing. And at least in my family history, I'll speak to that for a minute, Jeff. I mean, if I look back, most of the men have historically not lived past their early 50s, dying of heart attacks. Uh, most of the men have significant issues with alcohol, chain smoking. Um, a lot of the women um, present what we call codependency. One yeah. of the things I'm really obsessed about, okay? Uh, history of uh, legacy of low-income earning people who served in the wars, who most definitely took on trauma in those wars. We know the trauma is intergenerational. 
And then in the past couple of years, uh, toxic stress has finally come to the surface uh, as California a few years ago got their first Surgeon General for the state, whereas we're used to having one for the country. Uh, she brought to light this idea of toxic stress. Hmm. And, you know, I just sit back and look, Jeff, and it, it, it's an inconvenient truth. But how, how many more generations are we going to keep doing what we've been doing, passing on these uh, traumas, being confused that our, our future generations are struggling with them? Yeah, it seems like to me that the cycle just repeats itself. And, you know, I was speaking to a group of parents the other day about uh, trying to change this narrative. You know, changing the narrative means trying something different. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, you know, how many people out here have kids? And I, was, I think there was like 40 parent groups and um, almost everyone raised their hand. And I said, would y'all would, would y'all agree that you'd like to have your kids not start drinking? Would that be a good, fair answer? Yeah. And I said, how many here in this room drink alcohol? Not one hand went up. Hmm. And my point was, this isn't about your kids. This is about you. You want to make a difference? You show your kids how to make a difference. Don't tell them not to drink. Stop drinking alcohol. Demonstrate. And my point was, is that when I mentioned the kids, they all said, oh, yeah, sure. But they're not willing to take the sacrifice to make the changes in their own life. You don't want your kids to smoke? Quit smoking. You don't want your kids to be overweight? Then don't order a pizza every night. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how much more clear it can be for me. And I'm not a clinician. I don't have any medical background. I just go on observation. And I'm not saying quitting alcohol was easy. Uh, it, it, I haven't drank in almost four years. Uh, I've never smoked. I've never done drugs. But there's plenty of things that I've had to make decisions on every day. But I think it's so easy for us to go back and point to the kids and say, well, we need to change their behavior. We need to change the demand. We need to do all that. Yeah, we do. But it really starts with us. I mean, there's a reason why on a plane they say, put the mask on yourself first. We need to take care of ourselves first before we can start taking care of other people. So, you know, I just didn't know what you thought about that, that statement, because I say that frequently. It, it is a uh, pandemic of codependency out there, quite frankly. Oh, no question. Jeff. And it's yep. a term, the term codependency is not popular. Some people are going to grab it from this interview today and say, that's a really good term. Some people are going to be offended by the use of the term on this interview. Right. But we are in a pandemic of codependency, and that is my position. And it's also my position that codependency is this thing people learn in childhood uh, and it carries deeply and subtly on throughout their life. It exists in almost any relationship, at least a little bit. And I, I was actually just explaining this to some nice folks an hour ago. It's as simple as this. It's this, this thing we do where we don't understand where I stop and you start. And people who are healthier on this spectrum are clear about where, where Jake's hula hoop is and where Jeff's hula hoop is. And people who are less healthy, well, they end up on top of each other with their hula hoops. And for the child, the effects are very damaging and traumatizing. And it's a lifetime of work to deal with that. Uh, some folks, uh, myself included, would tell you it becomes addictive. Um, and then in my story, when I look at my reason 
for the use of alcohol and other substances. It was hands down to numb out codependency, but my original vice goes back, in my view, to the codependency and the traumas that related from that. You know, if you if you look at codependency, the and I have another gentleman on my podcast, one of my early podcasts, his name is David Essel, and he's a motivational speaker, and he's got a great TV sh- a radio show. Actually, I'm going to be a guest on a show, I think, next month. Uh, he's got like 15 books out, R- really good. He says the number one addiction is codependency. Number one human addiction is codependency. Hmm. And that's, that's where I first heard that from. And that, and you're the second person now to echo that. So obviously that, that seems to be a, a theme, but if you think of codependency, if you ask the average person, what is codependency? They think of it as, as from me to somebody else, I'm dependent on Jake. I'm dependent on my parents. I'm dependent on alcohol. I'm, but really codependency can be the inverse of enabling. So let's say, let's say you're enabling somebody, you're providing the codependency. So I think, I think enabling is, is in, and again, in, in a talk I did the other day, I was talking about if you're with an addict or someone in recovery and they like you and they're very, they want to be around you all the time, you're probably enabling them. If they hate you and they're mad at you and they, they confront you a lot, you're probably trying to save their life. Mm. And that's that's the dynamic between codependency and enabling. And so, yeah, I think codependencies, uh, for some reason, it's either misunder under it's misunderstood by society. And I don't think it's a one way street. I think codependency, like I said, the inverse of that would be the, the enabler, the person who is the enabler, someone that's mm. always enabling somebody is just as bad as being the one being codependent. I don't know if you thought of it from that perspective. Well, it's it's all at a point destructive. Yeah, and good point. Good point. What I care about is uh, simply can we gain you access to what's going on in order to get you a, at least a peak of awareness of what's going on? Because the the other thing about codependency, which is exactly why people may be like, what are you talking about? Is It's a canary in the coal mine. Um, and the thing is, they don't have a canary. And it's such a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas in their life hmm. uh, until w- we can find a way to get the canary to start chirping. I, and no different than my relationship with cocaine when I, I just one day, March 25th, 2017, woke up and it was like my soul had died. I had let go of the old version of me and something was indescribably different. That awareness, I had another bottom after that with my relationship with codependency, which really has to do with my unhealthy relationships with my family and friends. What are your coping mechanisms? What are my coping mechanisms? Lately, I've been doing a lot of breathing. Hmm. I find it super, super <laughs> I impactful. Too. I do uh, too. It was not part of my early recovery story. Uh, I got to tell you, though, um, for me, the, the hands down, the biggest thing uh, in my story was the surrender. Uh, when at least to some extent, because don't get me wrong, like I can I can get down with some controlling still to this day. Uh, but the, the surrender, the indescribable surrender that occurred as a result of my relationship with narcotics, that, that's the 
coping mechanism or the uh, way of coping that continues to pay dividends to me today. What What are you surrendering or whom are you surrendering to? Mm. My experience with, especially with narcotics, was that it allowed me to get into an illusion that I was the center of the whole darn universe. Mm -hmm. uh, and the obsession with attempting to run that show. Um, and in my very messy, very miserable surrender, I experienced this almost instant flip mm -hmm. where I, I accessed an awareness that that just wasn't the case anymore. Now, the problem is, and the huge reason why I'm so called to this is, Jeff, I can't explain how I made it out of that with my life, with hmm. my physical flesh life. As I said, I, I believe my old soul died and a new soul was born. But what it took to go through that without professional supports should have killed me. I, I, so I, I'm the same. I'm, I'm you, man. I, I don't know where either. And that's the thing. I'm on this journey, Jake. And that's why I wanted to talk to you is that I'd like to sit down and say, well, I found God. Well, that didn't happen. I'm, I'm an atheist. So I, I can't I can't ascribe that to God uh, or something else happened. I, I just like you one day, I just said I tried depression. I didn't like it. So I quit. I thought about suicide. I thought that's not for me. So I didn't I got that thought out of my head. I assume now that you meditate. Almost a constant state. I'll because tell you all uh, you said, everything you've said. Sounds like somebody who is into meditation. Uh, and uh, let me tell you, I resisted that one too. <laughs> he, here's what happened. Uh, I, I went down to Central America to begin my recovery. Oh, um, cool. I actually asked the owner of the program. So there's going to be other people there. I won't be alone, <laughs> right? Uh, and he honestly explained that usually there are, but it might be that there won't be. Right. And in my case, for three of the six weeks I was there, I was alone. And I just said how I resisted the meditation. But when you're in the jungle in Central America and there's uh, no access to technology minus 30 minutes a week and you're the only person in a beautiful environment, well, it helps you to get comfortable with being quiet and alone, breathing, finding the present moment. And so... It's another one of the miracles in the story that, that it just happened to find me. That's very interesting. It sounds like you and I both have very similar coping mechanisms. And I guess one of the things that I'm trying to do, especially with this tour next summer, that we're going to the, the whole United States and raising a million dollars for substance abuse and mental health and addiction, is someone said, well, Jeff, I can't wait till you're out there telling people how. I said, oh, stop. Wait a minute. This is a we story. This is not an I story. This is not about Jeff Johnston, motivational coach or Jeff Johnston, you know, uh, you know, life coach. No, this is more about Jake. I want to hear how you're surviving. I have a platform. I'd like to share your story in conjunction with my story that somebody out there that they'll say is religious. They may say, well, since Jeff doesn't believe in God, I'm not going to be interested in anything that comes out of his mouth after that. But Jake is a man of God, so I'll listen to him. So I want to provide everybody out there enough arrows in the quiver that when their son overdoses on heroin or their spouse dies from grief, 
which what killed my wife two months ago. Sorry for your loss. 21 year marriage. Um, again, you know, I, I have, I have these opportunities where I can screw this up and it's hard to, it's hard to tell people that I'm a better man. It is because they're like, well, you don't care or you're, you're callous, or maybe you guys didn't have a good marriage or maybe you're, you, you and your son didn't get along. Now it's so more intertwined spiritually and so deeper than all the superficial human things we, we put on things. Um, but, but no, so anyway, this whole journey is about trying to find people, not confirmation bias, Jake. I am, I am the opposite of confirmation bias. I, I read and watch things that I don't agree with to try to broaden my scope of perspective. So I'm not running through life with the illusion of I. And you said that so beautifully a few minutes ago when you talked about everything being about you. And that, that, that's through something I learned through my meditation as well. Is how really insignificant we are, yet we yield a lot of power in how we live our life and affect others. Mm-hmm. But the big picture of things, when you and I are gone, man, unless we have expensive stuff, we buried ourselves like the Egyptians did. Ain't nobody raiding my tombs, you know. <laughs> Most likely, I I will not be spoken of a few years after I'm gone. I won't uh, either. That, but I'll tell you, five years ago, I wouldn't want to talk about that. It was very it was very important to keep the racket going. Uh, you know, I, I I think back now, one of my rackets was using the narcotic. I, I wasn't going to sell narcotics. Because yeah. if I gave you narcotics, then I could really keep you controlled. Uh, I could really keep you where I needed you. Um, and, and that's just one example of the rackets I was running and the destruction that resulted. And um, at least it, it, it back to you know my experience of the universe is always uh, conspiring for the higher good. Somehow I got out of it and I have the opportunity to help other people. Uh, so if, if I got a hell, I got a hell with the, buckets of water uh and there's some other people trying to get out of the flames well then i just figure it's my job to go back in there with those buckets and and douse them on them but at the same time the thing i've gotten from this is an ability to look you in the eye and say i'm also going to do what's best for me something i'm going to ask you and i'm not sure what the answer will be but i'll throw it out there your descent into substance abuse and, and addiction was that initially more of an escape from something or were you more interested in exploring something? I got you. Well, I, t- I tell you that as a young man in the hellacious environment, that was this family secret. I would have told you I would never drink. Um, and then I would tell you actually the uh, effect uh, created by codependency uh, rendered me um, unable to say no when someone else uh, invited me to drink. Part of, part of my codependency has been uh, lacking a no. That's not the other person's fault. That's my inability to say no. And then flash forward um, around 2005, Jeff, I remember being, I was living in New York City and it was around, uh, it, was, it was Cinco de Mayo. But for some reason, I was drinking Long Island iced teas on Cinco de Mayo. And those things had an indescribable ease and comfort. They created an effect of 
peace and calm, not that different than the one I found today, but through the ingestion of them. Uh, and I can look in on, on that right into that period and say, that's probably where things started to escalate. Now I, I did get this, this gift that I consider to be rare where uh, in the years that followed that, I had this, this hunch, this intuition that something was not okay about what was going on. And I did things that we now know aren't that useful to deal with drinking too much. Like I'll run a marathon or I'll work harder or I'll exercise. Well, like those are not things science has shown so far to actually treat substance use disorder or right. addiction. And then eventually the window closed. And you know, one of the pivotal events when the window closed was when I found cocaine. Hmm. And for me, uh, and I, I know for this person is gambling, for this person it's alcohol. For me, cocaine was when I had really arrived when I felt this uh, ease that I, it's almost a spiritual experience to me to, to reflect on what it was like to discover cocaine. Uh, so we all have that, that uh, substance or that pattern, that behavior that really brings us home when we're in our addiction. For me, that was it. Um, and um, off I went. It closed. It really closed the door on uh, having a chance to stop, despite all the ways I had you know, tried to look into options before that. So you talked about supporting mothers who uh, have children that are um, into drugs and alcohol or substance abuse and addiction. Is that is that would you say that's that's where you hang your hat? That's your day to day. Uh, I don't want to say client base, but the people you work with is supporting the mothers that have children with these issues. That's my calling. So first, and, and and how, how do you specifically do that for your model, or, or what? What do you find successful, and how can you help people watching this show or listening that that are are the mothers uh, that are dealing with these issues? I look at my wife, and it cost her her life. Mm -hmm. It cost her her life, and we she, we tried so hard to save our son, and when we couldn't she couldn't save herself and I couldn't save her. And I'm not, I'm not trying to throw my wife under the bus. Don't get me wrong. Some mountains are just too tall for some people. And um, she did with what she had the best that she could. Uh, and, and that's probably the majority of most people out there uh, that, that would deal with that type of, of grief and trauma that way. But what do you find for moms out there? Um, what, what, what can you say to help them? I think I have a price of information to share today and it's my honor to give it away. Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm all ears. I dig it. Hey, so I am all for programs like Al-Anon. Uh, th the thing I'm going to share is available in that program. What I find as I go where I go is that Al-Anon just isn't a fit for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, for people, it's a fit. It's great. And for people who don't feel at home there, it doesn't work out. The program I offer to mothers, the program that Al-Anon offers to mothers, the program that other programs offer to mothers, and they just have to find one that's a good fit for them, is the hands-down way to support your child as a mother or your spouse as a husband or wife who's struggling with alcohol or drugs 
is to simply get in the mirror with yourself and get into action, outgrowing them and their problems. Right. Any specific steps? I mean, like, what's the first step? I mean, that, that we always talk about recovery and all these things. There's, there's always a first step. What would be, what would be the first step? Uh huh. Gotcha. Well, uh, whether you seek help that is professional or non-professional, one of the things about when we love someone struggling with alcohol or drugs, and maybe we start to identify with being a people pleaser or lacking a no with them is we're not going to accomplish overcoming that barrier with just reading books, just listening to podcasts, just looking at Facebook groups. We need another human support who is either a professional or who has come before us on this journey to be a mentor because we need back to the human connection again, Jeff, we need another human involved to do the kind of growth that happens with the codependency related to someone in your life struggling with alcohol or drugs. Now, why can can I, can I take the next question? Why Jeff? Uh, Yeah. Jump on it. I'd love it. Why the chaos and the energy created from the addiction of the other person requires that mother or spouse sister, brother, to come up with more energy mm-hmm. to overcome it than the energy of the addiction. It's and a net Jeff, loss. It's a net loss. I mean, you, you've lived it. Yeah. That addiction brings a lot of energy to the table. Would you agree? Oh, man. It's, it's soul-sucking. <laughs> I mean, it just takes everything out of you. Then you don't have time for your other kids and your business and your own health because you're just... I used to tell my son all the time, I'm just a fire chief to you. All I do is every call I get, I'm putting out a fire. Now, I loved him immensely, but I felt that I was being put in this position. So you're right. It's very, anyone watching this, you included, Jake, that have a loved one that that demands uh, this attention, uh, there's a fine line between enabling and unconditional love, I guess I'll say. Uh, And I lived it. And- you know, two people lost their life on my watch mm. and I can either let that take my life or I could say, Hey, what can I get out of this through conversations like with Jake that I can take to other people that they don't have to, you know, I've never done cocaine. You have, but you haven't lost a child. I have. True. So, but you and I together, we have a story that together we can help a lot of people. And just imagine if you and I could get together with hundreds of thousands of people and share our stories, which is what I want to do next summer. That's my whole objective next summer is to get people like you and I out there to continue these stories. So the next Jake coming up, who's 14 or the next Jeff that, you know, is 45 that hasn't had all this happen yet, that when it does happen, it's not the end of their life. You and I are still here. You're a, you're a guest on my podcast. So somehow we survived. The legacy will live. Well, hey, here's the deal. In so many ways, we cannot change the wind, but we can definitely adjust our sails. And I feel like that's what people like you and I are are living into. When it comes to the individual family, it it is a miraculous act for someone who loves someone with an addiction to learn to stop breathing for them, Mm -hmm. to learn to breathe for themselves 
in a way that allows the person with the addiction to also start breathing for themselves. And I, I mean, I listened to myself a few minutes ago. I got a hell of a story when it comes to my youth story, right? But I'm getting to the point where I think I have a bigger story when it comes to my excitement for the solution. And by the way, I am not partial to any way of recovery. Mm. I am partial to what is the goal and what can we come up with that will work for this individual to get there. And that's a key component of navigation too, individualized. hundred percent. And I, I see that, you know, with polo and stuff, um, you know, you're into horses, obviously. Um, is that, is that a correct statement? That's very correct. Actually the path to which I found this latest evolution of my journey with this program that has carried the Emerge uh, word or the Emerge brand for the last four years started with horses. I want to yeah. hear more about this. I want to hear more about this because that was something I saw a lot of your posts and stuff. I, how, how do horses help with recovery and therapy and all that? I know, I know I've seen plenty of programs where, you know, autistic children or, or people that that need, you know, that, that, that comfort of, a, of an animal, but someone going through recovery, you know, is it the same concept? Uh, the horse is the same concept. The work to specifically reach someone in recovery, I would say quite different. You know, mm -hmm. the container I'm interested in is quite transformational. Yes, the horses can be soothing to pet them. Um, yes, um, their hearts produce an electromagnetic wave frequency that uh, has a 15 foot radius. Uh, so whatever they're putting down, you're picking up in that frequency. Um, so yes, there are soothing aspects to being around them. No doubt it, it might benefit you to lower your stress and not have that next drink. What I'm talking about is the transformational opportunity with them. At the end of the day, where I'm really excited to take people is on a path of massive awakening. Hmm. Often that starts when that person who does struggle with substances, here's at least how I describe it. When he figures out what that lizard is that's keeping him drunk or high, and he does it on the back of the horse in the experiences that we have, and you see, or I get to see, the look on his face that he just coughed up that lizard, that lizard he couldn't find for the life of him in a place like group therapy. I'm all for group therapy, by the way, but well, he, he wasn't finding it there on the back of the horse relating. He found it and he can begin his path to freedom. Well, so great. He's accessed it, but now he needs some awareness. Horses are incredible mirrors because remember, so we're pack animals. We're predators. You notice your eyes and my eyes are in the front of our head. Look at a horse or a deer or a cow, the eyes are in the side. That's a prey mm -hmm. animal, okay? So the prey animal has evolved uh, to be programmed to stay alive, which I, I could get on another tangent of what, yeah. a, what a miracle it is that an animal that is convinced you might eat it at any moment lets you on its back. Hmm. Can you see the parallels for oh, yeah. somebody who struggle with drugs to get in a relationship like that? The trust there is is immense. For sure. For sure. And, and the awareness, the, the, you know, cause for me too, awareness has not always been a strength. Um, and I'll leave it to the jury, how it's going today. The awareness that the horses give people about their true self, you know, that's the hallmark of working with people in recovery of horses.
So where is this mental health industry going? I mean, it seems to me, if you look again, I, I repeat this pretty much every theme, but you know, there's 14,000 treatment centers. So mm -hmm. do we make it, do we make it 14,001? Do we make it 14,002? You know, do, do we just make them bigger and nicer? And um, there's 3.5 million people in recovery. There's, it's like a $60 billion business. So is that the next evolution is just more facilities or, or, and I propose, or I submit to people to ponder is the next evolution breaking through and trying alternative ways. And you're in a, you're in an area where that would probably be a little bit, you have a niche there with using the horses and especially with the mothers and stuff. It's, it's, it's definitely something that, that you roll to and you feel comfortable in, you know, an area that I've been just recently kind of interested in, in, uh, actually finding a guest on my podcast is in the psychedelic space, which really goes counter to maybe a dad that lost a son to drugs ought to be more, more criminal, more laws, you know, uh, go after the drug cartels, go after big pharma, punitive stuff. I'm not that way. I'm not a, I'm not a vengeful person. You know, that stuff didn't kill Seth. Seth's decision to do heroin killed Seth. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I'm not going to change the supply side of anything. Uh, so going back to my question, I guess, with psychedelics, which piqued, piqued my interest is there seems to be a lot of people I'm seeing on LinkedIn and social media that are just kind of sprinkling in this concept. Now, I've never tried a psychedelic and full disclosure, it's not on my bucket list yet. That doesn't mean I can't be open to understanding what originally attracted me, Jake, was I was on the Alzheimer's board here in Cedar Rapids and I came across some research that psychedelics, there is some early or maybe some you know, repressed evidence back in the 80s and 90s where, with um, Alzheimer's, end-of-life therapy, where psychedelics have really been beneficial uh, to help people either with cognitive impairments uh, or memory and when they're dying, instead of just giving them morphine, giving them fentanyl, you just numb, numb the pain before they cross over to wherever they go, uh, psychedelics seem to be there. So now I'm, I'm reading literature on psychedelics for ADD, psychedelics for mental health, psychedelics for alcoholism. And all of a sudden my radar went up like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe this is the next landscape of mental health therapy. What's your thoughts on that? Wow. That's a lot. Uh, let me take a, a whack. And then if you have a follow-up, uh, feel free to come back. Okay. Uh, my first thought is I have a responsibility to practice within the scope of my practice mm -hmm. and I have that ethical responsibility to the people I help. Uh, and I've also stated uh, that I uh, believe in individualized recovery, no one size fits all, and let's get you something that works. So what do I do with that? Well, I'm trained as a scientist in the animal sciences, uh, and so I do follow the sciences. Um, and if you think that that's possibly a route that would be supportive to you, uh, then I can absolutely be supportive of routing you or navigating you to someone who is thought to be a leading provider in that field. Uh, and I could definitely support you in evaluating if you think that's helpful for you. I know people who uh, swear it has helped them significantly, Jeff. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, I also feel we are in a period of massive change in that whole space. And I personally um, am 
in the camp of wait and see. There's some exciting uh, elements happening in Oregon, not just in the psychedelics, but also the decriminalization. Yeah, and I agree with that. I 100% agree with that. Here in Idaho, the position actually, uh, we're one of the few states to not have even medical marijuana. The position is that we're surrounded by states that are trying this experiment. Uh, and so between the decriminalization in Oregon and the overall availability of medical marijuana in the surrounding states, the Idaho position is wait and see. Um, and my own tendency, given my background in the sciences, is to let the data inform this process yeah. with open-mindedness. Right. I, I, I look at this too as, you know, what does this show the kids? I guess if, if we start taking psychedelics to do whatever, it almost opens the door that that's okay for kids to start exploring. I remember kids, kids do things differently than adults. I mean, I'm at the stage in my life where I'm not really escaping anything. Mm -hmm. uh, mine would be exploration. Mine would be going to another realm of spirituality or consciousness or something where I could keep evolving as a species, as, as a human, you know, um, you know, I've got this quote that I use a lot, you know, you're green. If you, if you're green, you grow, if you're ripe, you rot. And so if you just, if you always stay learning, whether it's things that you agree with or not, just keep learning then, then you evolve. But if you, if you feel like, well, I know, I know this, I know this, I know this, I know this, then you start rotting and you start dying. And I just, for me, I, at 55 years old with enough death, death in my life, I have to stay green. I have to stay open-minded. That's why like politically I'm homeless. I, I don't have a home politically. I don't, gotcha. I don't even watch any TV. I don't, I don't, it doesn't interest me to have people yelling at each other, trying to convince me how to think when I don't really want to think about those things. I, I want, I want more peace in my life and less happiness and watching TV doesn't make me happy. So I don't watch it. And so uh, I talk a lot about that, the freedom, the frame of mind that we try to get as we get older. And I think learning is so important, Jake, and not shutting doors and keep breaking down barriers, you know, and as a scientist, now I'm not trained like you, but philosophically, I'm a skeptic. I'm a scientist. I'm, I like to see the evidence, yet I have faith. I have faith in processes. I have faith in humanity. I have faith in people overall are good. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm proven wrong daily, but I don't lose that faith. I had faith that Adderall would help my son. It didn't. But I had faith when a doctor said take Adderall that he, that he knew more than I did. We're back on so, the consequences topic. So faith... Faith can lead you down a dangerous path if you're too faithful. So I want faith, but I want to, like Reagan said, trust but verify. I want faith but verify. I got it. Uh, it sounds like we follow might, me. We might be pretty close on this one. Yeah, uh, we, you know, especially with social these days, a, a good mean uh, to to an person. I mean, that's better than hard science to some people. Uh, and that's a, just another reason for the relevance of advocates, professionals, navigators, people to say, oh, wait, hold on. Could we have a conversation about that? Mm -hmm. Could we pull up some overall information? Could we look into the source of that information? Oh, well, the information you're getting is, is from your friend, um, and he's in the sixth grade, <laughs> and this is what he 
has learned from his parents' behavior, because you were on this, I really wanted to stop there, Jeff, but we kept going. I mean, these kids, they're not learning from what the parents say. They're learning from what the parents do. 100%. And the, the fact yep. of the matter, yep. when it comes to substances in our society today, is, my view at least, if we're attacking it uh, from the supply side, we're wasting tons of money and energy. But if we go at it from the demand side, we have a lot of hope. Yeah, and there's a lot more room on the demand side because everything's on the supply side. Everything's going after treatment facilities and recovery and, and rehab and, and drug, you know, the drug laws and big pharma. And everyone's going after that. And I just figure my voice is more hurt or more impactful if it's heard on the demand side. And so I want to work with the kids. I want to work with the parents in talking with the kids and teaching the parents, hey, you know what? You may want to blame this on your kids. This is really a you problem. And I, I have to confess, when my son was going through his alcoholism, his addiction, his incarcerations, uh, my wife and I were still drinking. We were drinking a bottle or two of wine every night, every night. And I didn't have the courage, uh, you know, as, as, as a dad, as a man, as a father, you know, I didn't have the courage to say, Seth, I'm going to support you by supporting myself first quitting. I have to take that to my grave, but I don't haunt myself with it. I take it to my grave. I take, I take it to my grave with a responsibility, not a burden. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, my invitation for everyone to consider in being gentle on themselves is like, are you doing the most you can with what you have? Mm -hmm. And I mean, in the beginning, I talked about the, the mayhem and destruction of my family history and the poverty. Like, but generation to generation, to gen there's a consistent pattern of people doing better and doing the most they can with what they have. And if I look at people from that standpoint, I can feel pretty hopeful. Hmm. So what's next for you? I mean, uh, do you have a book out? I don't. I need an author. So maybe uh, <laughs> this could also be a request uh, for uh, a great ghostwriter. Uh, what's next for me? So the next evolution of Emerge will be the Emerge Center for Addiction Recovery. And it. one of my goals, thank you, is a big goal for me is to have some geographic flexibility. And so while the horses and the transformational work I offer will uh, certainly be available. Uh, a lot of the mainstay work I'm doing is going virtual. The last couple of years have really opened that up for me. I'm excited to have my flexibility because that's what's best for me. And I'm excited to reach more people in more places thoroughly, effectively, often three to six months before a mother's son or daughter is ready to go to treatment, there is a really important conversation we should start having. That's all going live next week. We are one week oh, wow. from awesome. launching the platform. Wicked excited about that. So we're recording here today, Jeff, on September 8th, uh, and that'll go out on September 15th. I have an exciting invitation today. Thanks for your willingness to let me make it. Uh, we will be posting in the comments of this podcast a link where anyone, and especially a mother who's concerned about their son or daughter's drinking, can take our free Get Sober and Stay Sober assessment. And 
Well, that's that's pretty compelling to me to have the stace over part come up here at the tail end of our interview, Jeff, because, you know, we know a lot of people that put their kids through so many treatment centers. The get sober part for some happens at nauseum. Uh, and part of part of what's so important in this evolution is we got to we got to crack the nut on the stace over part for those people. Wow. that That's their goal. Yeah. That, I mean, that's so, so well said because it's so many metaphors you could come up with or analogies, um, you know, losing weight's easy, keeping it off's not, you know, there's all these, there's all these things, you know, lowering your cholesterol is fairly easy, but keeping it low is not. I mean, because we revert back to norms and codependency and things like that, that, that get us back into trouble. But I think sobriety itself is a very interesting um, word because for me personally, I don't use the word. And I'll tell you why, Jake, because it implies a struggle mm-hmm. and I'm not in a struggle. Uh, and so I don't use the word. I never tell people I'm sober. I just, you know what I tell people? I choose at 313 on Wednesday, September 8, 2021, as I'm speaking with Jake LeClaire, not to drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. That's what I tell myself. What so I don't. I don't play the social narratives of the norms that most people play. I don't use the word alcoholic or sober or recovery or anything. I just choose at this moment not to drink. Now I may choose tomorrow to drink, but I'm not there tomorrow. I'm not there yet. I could, I could die tonight. So why spend a lot of time and I don't look backwards. I don't, I don't, t- I can't tell me how many days I've been sober. I, or I just contradict myself. I can't tell you how many days I haven't had a drink. I can tell you the day I quit, but I don't keep score. Mm-hmm. I don't keep score. Because, because for me, let me, let me role play this with you. If I decide to drink today, okay, I wouldn't torture myself that I ruined some streak. And I know they don't teach you this in AA. They want you to keep a streak because that, that holds you accountable. It works for them. I don't, yeah, to me, I don't play that. I have a bottle of wine next to my bed. I have a, I have a 2016 bottle of Camus, which is the name of my dog. Okay. Uh, To remind me that I have this conquered. Now, that goes against everything that everybody will tell you. But like everyone tells me, but Jeff, it works for you. It works for you. So I tell people out there, find your why and you'll find a way. You'll find a way. Most people, Jake, just haven't found their why. For me, it took the death of two people. That was my why. But not everybody's going to have something like that happen. Maybe a why is you got fired from your job. Maybe you maybe you got divorced. Maybe you got bankrupt. Maybe you got a drunk driving and injured somebody. Uh, there, there's a million whys. You have found a why and you have found a way. So have I. We're just two people. I mean, I think our stories in conjunction with our unique situations, I think we can help a lot of people, man. I really do. I really think there's a lot of people really struggling. If, you know, if that wasn't a true statement, then why is every statistic going through the roof? When my son died, there was, there was 56,000 overdoses. Last year was 95. So, I mean, you're talking less than five years, man. That's an 80% increase. What's out there isn't working. Mm -hmm. It ain't working. It ain't working. We need, we need new approaches. We need new narratives. We need to break the stigma. We need to stop using the same terms we've been using that day. And we need to just look at things from a different perspective. And I'm honored to have you on the show. I, I, I'm, I've really just met you, but I think with your, when this, when this podcast post, your launch will already be out there. So you and I will have connected many times. I want to promote what you're doing on my website. I want to meet you on the tour. 
Uh, I'd love cool to have, I'd love to have a opportunity to meet all my influencers on social media. And at the end of the day, if one person watches this podcast and says, you know, today's a day I'm just tired of being tired. Mm -hmm. Something Jake said, I'm, I'm never going to drink again, or I'm not going to drink today. Like they're going to set their goal and they're going to yeah. live into it. Whatever that goal may be. Then you and I are making a difference. That's so key. You know, and I have to keep reminding myself, I'm not on this journey to save everyone, especially if it's at my demise. You know, that that's the, that's the, the very cautious dance we're all in is that you want to help people, Jake, but we don't want to do it at your demise. Right. Yeah. And it's well, easy to do. Vulnerability can be a problem if, it, if you don't manage it. I'm very proud of you to hear you talking about doing what's best for you. And yeah, uh, what's best for me is to have a, a rich, deep, transformational impact. My purpose will have been fulfilled not by how many, but how deep. Uh, and uh, got to tell you, Jeff, I took a look at the tour. It's quite a schedule, man. Uh, so yeah, I did. I did catch the routes. I was picturing all the zigs and zags. Really excited for you. I think it will be incredibly deep. I'm excited to see you on the road, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be on with you today. It's 92 days, but I ain't ever coming back, brother. I love it. I'm never coming back. I, I told my told my boys, you know, it's. Uh, I can look at being widowed and all this as 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 this. Uh, convenient excuse for me to ruin my life and those around me, or I can look at this as it's freed up the world for me to go out and, you know, in being vulnerable and sharing my story, people like Jake are going to say, well, maybe I'm going to talk about what happened to me when I was 10, or maybe I'm going to talk about my cocaine addiction. And, and, you know, like I said, uh, I walk away out of every conversation, a, a better person. And I can add you to the list of, of, um, of those experiences. So how do people re reach you, Jake? Yeah, the website, I'd love, I'd love to share some information. Website is www.emergeresilient.com. That'll be in the comments. Resilient with a T. With a T. Yep. Uh, I could be emailed at jake at emergeresilient.com. The link to the assessment will then lead you to more great content. And look forward to connecting. I offer a no-fee recovery activation call. It's my dream to get this no-fee recovery activation navigation focus call broadly available. I hope the, that eventually the calls overwhelm us and we need mm -hmm. a plan to figure out how to handle the calls. Because what we do in our recovery activation calls, Jeff, is we take a chance to get really clear on an individualized basis about exactly what's holding somebody back. Because see, what I've come across is that my model, my business provides extra for my family. I don't have a bed to fill tonight. Um, I don't have an investor to pay for. And therefore, I have an opportunity uh, to do this work in a way that can be uh, so oriented toward what's right, both for me and the people we serve. 
Um, and so I came across that insight recently that by doing this model from a, a place, from a business model, uh, that it will be depended on only for what's extra. Uh, I guess that means it won't be depended on. Uh, that changed everything about how and why we're doing this. Um, and most importantly, um, for folks who choose to access more of our services, uh, we can make it all about what's best for them. Well, don't hope, just do. Let's do. <laughs> hey, listen, brother, um, appreciate being on the show. It's been an honor. And I know you and I are going to stay well connected in the future. And um, with that, I end every episode with thank you. And as always, live undeterred. <laughs>